This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Nothing can describe the confusion of thought which I felt when I sank into the water. For though I swam very well, yet I could not deliver myself from the wave so as to draw breath, till that wave, having driven me, or rather carried me a vast way on towards the shore, and having spent itself, went back, and left me upon the land almost dry, but half dead with the water I took in. Seeing myself nearer the mainland than I expected, I got upon my feet and endeavoured to make on towards the land as fast as I could before another wave should return and take me up again, but I soon found it was impossible to avoid it, for I saw the sea come after me as high as a great hill and as furious as an enemy which I had no means or strength to contend with. The wave that came upon me again buried me at once twenty or thirty feet deep in its own body and I could feel myself carried with a mighty force and swiftness towards the shore. But I held my breath and assisted myself to swim still forward with all my might. I was ready to burst with holding my breath when, as I felt myself rising up, so, to my immediate relief, I found my head and hands shoot out above the surface of the water. And though it was not two seconds of time that I could keep myself so, yet it relieved me greatly, gave me breath and new courage. I was covered again with water a good while, but not so long but I held it out. And finding the water had spent itself and began to return, I struck forward against the return of the waves and felt ground again with my feet. But neither would this deliver me from the fury of the sea which came pouring in after me again, and twice more I was lifted up by the waves and carried forward as before. The last time of these two had well nigh been fatal to me, for the sea, having hurried me along as before, landed me, or rather dashed me, against a piece of rock, and that with such force that it left me senseless and indeed helpless as to my own deliverance. For the blow, taking my side and breast, beat the breath, as it were, quite out of my body, and had it returned again immediately, I must have been strangled in the water. But I recovered a little before the return of the waves, and seeing I should be covered again with the water, I resolved to hold fast by a piece of the rock, and so to hold my breath if possible till the wave went back. Now as the waves were not so high as the first, being near land, I held my hold till the wave abated, and then fetched another run, which brought me so near the shore that the next wave, though it went over me, yet did not swallow me up as to carry me away. And then the next run I took I got to the mainland, where to my great comfort I clambered up the cliffs of the shore and sat me down upon the grass free from the danger and quite out of reach of the water. I walked about on the shore, lifting up my hands and my whole being, as I might say, wrapped up in a contemplation of my deliverance, making a thousand gestures and motions which I cannot describe, reflecting upon all my comrades that were drowned, and that there should not be one soul saved but myself. You may well recognise these words, or if not, you'd certainly recognise the situation. A man, shipwrecked at sea, washes up on a desert island, half-drowned but alive, the sole survivor from his ship. These isolated, far from civilization, a castaway, or, as in the case of the original text you've just heard, a Robinson Crusoe. 2019 will mark 300 years of Daniel Defoe's famous novel, The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe. 
a book which has had hundreds, if not thousands of editions, which has been translated into over a hundred languages, adapted for stage and screen more times than it's possible to accurately record, a book which was an immediate commercial success, accessible and readable by the masses, a novel at a time when the form really was novel. It's often cited as the first English novel, or if not, certainly the first English realist novel. A single work of literature that spawned an entire genre and left a lasting, powerful and problematic myth in the popular imagination. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that for one reason or another, which I hope to get into in a little bit, almost everyone seems to have heard of Robinson Crusoe. Or at least, if not the name itself, then the idea of the quote-unquote man isolated on the island is a familiar enough trope that it seems to have entered some kind of Western canonical popular mythology. This is Dr. Ian Kinane. I'm Ian Kinane. I am lecturer in English literature at the University of Roehampton in London, where I research and teach popular genre fiction, children's literature and post-colonial literatures. And as he points out, it's pretty safe to say that while the average person today has probably not read the original text, it's an equally safe assumption that absolutely everyone is familiar with the story. Whether you've watched Tom Hanks in Castaway, seen or read one of the many versions of the Swiss Family Robinson, maybe you've read a simplified version of Robinson Crusoe as a child, or seen the same plot played out in space or on Mars. There are TV shows like Gilligan's Island, Lost in Space, Lost, Survivor, and on and on. The myth of Robinson Crusoe is embedded in our culture, but it often comes as a bit of a surprise to people that the book itself is not actually just the story of a man cast away on an island. Daniel Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe in 1719, um, and the book is much more than just the story of a man surviving on an island. Uh, what a lot of people don't actually realise is that there's, there's, there's quite a lot of other elements to the novel um, than just Crusoe and his equally famous Man Friday and their um, pseudo-relationship, if you will, on the island. Um, the novel really is about the endeavouring mercantile class and the disagreement between, I suppose, paternal authority and the, the vigours of youth, really. So it, it starts with the, the title character, Robinson Crusoe, disobeying his father. So he goes overseas. And it's not until a good section into the book, after we've been sort of treated to the intricacies of British economy, British foreign policy, etc., that kind of thing, that we actually witness the, the infamous shipwreck that lands Crusoe on the island. And on top of that, it's crucial that Crusoe is rescued. He returns to his plantations, a very rich man. So while on the surface, or at least in the popular imagination, the idea of Robinson Crusoe might be one that suggests wealth, lack of wealth, I should say, isolation, um, desolation. The story of the sole survivor on the island is really one that is bookended or framed by, I suppose, the intricacies of, of British and Western European economy in the early 18th century. This is a story about a man who seeks wealth, who seeks the world, who wants everything, who ends up in absolutely uh, the opposite situation, destitute with nothing, and who emerges from that triumphant. Having said all that, the majority of the book is set on the island, and this is what has made the book such a lasting classic. 
But even this portion of the book is not quite the gripping adventure tale you might think it is. It's slow. A slow read. I think a lot of perhaps younger readers, perhaps more contemporary readers who, who are familiar with the Robinson Crusoe story, are familiar with the Robinson Age genre of works that have followed Crusoe, might be thinking it's, it's, it's high-octane adventure. Um, once you've you know, read several pages of, of, of Crusoe talking about how he's drying out his grapes and taking care of you know, things on the island. When the corn was sown, I had no harrow, but was forced to go over it myself and drag a great heavy bough of a tree over it to scratch it, as it may be called, rather than rake or harrow it. When it was growing and grown, I have observed already how many things I wanted to fence it, secure it, mow or reap it, cure and carry it home, thrash part of it from the chaff and save it. Then I wanted a mill to grind it, sieves to dress it, yeast and salt to make it into bread and an oven to bake it. But all these things I did without, as shall be observed. You'll realise, okay, this is, this, is, this is a slow burner. It's a slow burner. So why has it remained so popular? What was it about that book at that time? Why has it become such a foundational part of our popular culture? Why, dear God, why are there 35 seasons of the CBS television show Survivor? Well, according to Dr. Kinane, there are at least four very significant reasons. Religion, education, power, and money. You know, the big ones. Religion. What the story of Robinson Crusoe really shows us is a man who, who comes to terms with faith, who comes to terms with his belief in, in providential order, with a divine, with a divine rule. And to the, to the culture of, of Europe that was so entrenched in, in, in sort of religious thought, particularly Protestantism, this spoke a great deal to the righteousness of the Protestant religion. Then there are the didactic elements to the tale. Education the way in which young people should be educated. The philosopher John Locke, his thoughts concerning education, as well as the uh, philosopher Rousseau, his thoughts on, on, um, on how he would ideally wish his own child to be educated, to be brought up within nature. Very much spoken to by Defoe's novel. Um, so much so that Rousseau said that, that Robinson Crusoe is, is the only book that one would need to give a child for the child to learn all that there is to know about living in the real world. It's an alternative parenting method, certainly. Dump a child on an island with a copy of Robinson Crusoe, come back in a few years and see how things have turned out. And then, of course, there's imperialism. Power. So the British Empire was, was, was gradually and had gradually been expanding for many years. And one of the reasons why Crusoe proved so popular as, as a story, as a myth, as a figure is that he really speaks to, and in a sense, justifies Britain's imperial campaigns. It's the story about a man who goes out and who not only conquers uh, a barren terrain, but subjugates other people. And of course, problematically, you know, we think in hindsight, this is very problematic, but at the time, there was a great deal of ideological um, thought that suggested not only that the white Western European was superior, but that in a way, what Defoe's story shows us is a sort of a, a need or a justification for the white man's presence all over the world, and specifically the British white man's presence. Then there's the economy. Money. Crusoe goes out in order to make his riches, in order to make his wealth. 
His ship sinks. He ends up nothing on the island. And from nothing, he builds up everything, an island community. And not only that, but he then, when he returns from the island, he returns a wealthy man. So you have this idea um, about the effects of labor in Crusoe, the way in which it, you know, it's, it's perhaps not too dissimilar to the, to the, to the American myth of, 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 of the American dream, I suppose, that if you work hard enough, the world is yours for the taking. And these are issues which have had profound and lasting effects. We are still getting to grips with the way in which the myth of Robinson Crusoe has so infected, and I suppose I use that word quite pointedly, has so infected um, certainly mainstream Western, broadly Euro-American popular culture, to say the least. So what about today? If we skip forward 300 years, why does the tale appeal to us now? One of the main reasons that the novel has sustained is to do with its, its egomania, the egomania of Robinson Crusoe, and, and in some way the solipsism of the central character. You know, we've moved into a time in which flagrant egomania is celebrated. And, and, and what is Robinson Crusoe? if not the ultimate egomaniac. He is the ruler of his own kingdom. He has carved out for himself a space in which he is a sort of god on earth. In terms of the philosophical outlook of Defoe's novel, it's, it's, it's not cheery adventure. It's not just cheery adventure, I should say. It, it addresses deeply existential crises of a man who is cast ashore on his own and must question himself, an implied God, why, why of all things should this happen? Why should this happen to me? Why me? Why am I the only one to live? Is it a blessing that I am the only one that survived? Or is it a blessing that everyone else is dead? So it really addresses, I think fundamentally, philosophical questions about the nature of what it means to, to be human. And when one thinks of philosophical questions about the nature of what it means to be human, I guess the mind just leaps to the reality TV show Survivor. The show is a product of three centuries of Robinsonades. This is the name given to those Crusoe-like stories which involve shipwreck, a desert island, encountering a strange new society or person, and so on. You know the story. And Robinson has given his name to it. It's an entire genre of fiction, and there are thousands and thousands of books and films, plays and poems, TV shows, comic books, which take up the Robinson theme. One explicit contemporary example is, is the ongoing reality, the US reality show Survivor, which is now in its 35th season. So it's been running from 2000, and it continues to place people on desert islands for the express purpose of seeing what happens. It builds itself as a social experiment. Okay, so on the one hand, you have the idea that, yes, tropical islands are beautiful and exotic places of plenty and possibly wanton sex. Um, it's also the place of abundance where things can happen, where you can create yourself anew. And you see, you see these American contestants taking part in a social experiment that ostensibly sets them up to build a new social community. But of course, it's a fallacy because ultimately only one person is left alone. That one person gets the money at the end of, of the reality show competition. So you have built into our, 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 our kind of think into the fabric of our, our conception of contemporary adventure, 
of what it means to, to test oneself, to push oneself to the limits. I could do that. I'll get up off my couch and do that. You have built into that fabric this conflict that I think adventure fiction and Robinsonade literature and castaway narratives have always had embedded in their fabric. And that is the relationship between sociality and individualism. Most recent season is Survivor Heroes versus Healers versus Hustlers. And it gives you a sense of how they're dividing the trial. I mean, it's just, it's so bizarre, but it's so exciting. Nice, nice. <laughs> uh, so you, you just have this ongoing social experiment running alongside your research. Oh my God, uh, absolutely. I, I, I think it's fundamental to it. I'm just like, how interesting. When will this, when will this model actually implode on itself? There are actually so many seasons of the show that they've run out of islands to use. There was a point a couple of years ago at which the Survivor producers decided to reuse old locations. They're running out of places to market as isolated. They're running out of places to market as deserted, which I think is wonderfully ironic. So they bring (laughs) their huge big production crews to them and then they're like, you know, They've rejuvenized an economy and, and, and with it bringing a sort of entourage of tourists. The Robinson Aid is here to stay. The original novel has long been copied, parodied, undermined, rewritten from alternative perspectives, transplanted to other cultures, but the power of the story remains. The fascination with individualism and society, with authority, with survival and fate. In one of the most famous scenes in English literature, Robinson Crusoe walks along the beach of an island he has long accepted is uninhabited. Suddenly, he sees a footprint, someone else's footprint, in the sand. He's stunned, he feels afraid and vulnerable. Is he being watched? But then there's the fact that he may not be alone. There's the possibility of society, of saviour. The scene, like the novel itself, like the myth of Robinson Crusoe, is so many things at once. It's shocking and unexpected. It's problematic, but hopeful. It's disconcerting, but always intriguing. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. I have a quick announcement about a great literary event coming up, so stay tuned if you want to hear about it. If you want to know more about Robinson Crusoe, about the show, the guests, the music, and more, then head over to wttepodcast.com, where you can also find all the old episodes and related articles. I haven't posted as many accompanying articles in the last few weeks because I've been working on some other stuff, but there will be lots going up in the coming weeks. And if you keep an eye on the website, there will be a very exciting podcast-related announcement coming up next week. Oh, and you can check out the show on Facebook as well, and I'm on Twitter at C-E-D-Read, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Special thanks this week to Dr. Ian Kinane. You can read more about his work and his research on the Words to That Effect website. I would highly recommend his book on the Robinsonade. It's called Theorising Literary Islands, and I'll put some links on the website as well. Music this week was by 3EP Cano, a great Irish band who are sadly no more. But musician Matthew Nolan is still very much making music. If you're in Dublin, you might have been lucky enough last week to catch a screening of the film Vampire as part of the Bram Stoker Festival with a live score by Matthew. And I'll put some links to his music there on the website as well. And speaking of Dublin events, I wanted to let you know about the Dublin Book Festival. It starts on Thursday, the 2nd of November, and is running until the 9th. 
it's a great festival. I really enjoyed it last year, and they have lots of different events on this year. They've got readings and debates, book launches, workshops. Or you can just go and get a coffee in Smock Alley, surrounded by books and maybe listening to this podcast. I've got my tickets anyway for a couple of the events already, and I would advise you to do the same. All the information is at www.dublinbookfestival.com. So that's it. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.